The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. In this episode, I'm joined by David Duxbury, the well-known and much-respected aviation historian. David has spent many decades researching the Royal New Zealand Air Force and is an absolute wealth of knowledge on the topic. I'm very pleased that he's agreed to join me on this show and on future shows in a sort of occasional series where we'll look at all different aspects of our Air Force in New Zealand. In this episode... We'll go right back to the beginning of the Air Force, covering the often forgotten days between 1923 and the mid-1930s. It would be quite good to sort of start off with the actual formation of the Air Force back in 1923. Yeah, it was. Of course, uh, the, the amazing thing about that, of course, is how tiny it was. <laughs> mm, and, how, and how it was organised. It was totally different uh, to where you know, modern Air Force people just look back in horror and think, you know, that's not any sort of an Air Force. <laughs> so, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, for to start with, the entire... It was like it was exactly like the Army. And because, of course, it was part of the Army, and it was just run on Army lines. And, um, yeah. and, and, and of course, the, the entire Army was territorial. Right. The only permanent part of the Army in those days was the uh, staff. They call them staff. It was basically right. the hardcore, the... Army office in Wellington, I suppose it was, or Trentham, or where their headquarters were actually in those days. But um, and you know, it was on paper it looked most impressive. You had you had all these formations and bloody regiments all over the place. Yep. Um, right from you know, you had your artillery and you had your infantry, you had your mounted rifles, of course the medical and um, army service corps and all that sort of stuff. And uh, and of course another big thing was the um, uh, veterinary Corps, which of course had to look after right. the horses. You had your medical corps for the humans and the veterinary corps for the animals. And, um, and there were probably other bits and pieces tacked on too. But um, but practically all of that was, all the fighting units were territorials. There was no regulars at all. Okay. And that's how the Air Force was arranged. Um, you know, it had about, I think in the early days it was typically four to six officers in the entire Air Force, uh, uh, regulars. All the other, uh, of course, the ter- uh, territorial part of the Air Force, you know, the, what they call, it was called the New Zealand Air Force brackets, territorial, was um, almost entirely officer. 
didn't have any sergeant pilots, although they did have one, but he was a warrant officer or flight sergeant. Um, you'd probably know his name. What the hell was he called? Now? Simpson, one of the Simpson okay. brothers, and they. Um, he had actually been a pilot, but he, um, in fact, he got his. No, he became a pilot, I think. He, um, I've seen his logbook at Wigram, and he actually was learning to fly all the aircraft at Wigram in the mid 20s, it was. You know, the DH 9s and the Bristols and so yep. forth. Yep. And, um, and he was an engineer officer, or, or, or engineer NCO, I should say. And I think he was the only one they had until. From, uh, I think, because all the ones that graduated from our training schools too in the late 30s, raw officers, they all went as officers and none of them went as sergeants. That right. started in about right. early, early-ish 1940, I suppose. They finally started turning out a proportion of them as NCOs. You know, probably about half, actually. Right. That's the way it went right through the war. But um, Yes, they had an entire territorial air force and manned... Uh, entirely by officers. They were, they were going to form a um, territorial ground staff, but they never had enough money for that, so they so the, they couldn't have any aircraft. That's why the squadrons, until the late 30s, never had their own aircraft. You know, the ter- four territorial squadrons? Oh, okay. Because well, yeah. they, they didn't even have squadrons at all until, was it 1930, when they decided to form them into proper squadrons with numbers and everything. Yep. And they numbered them, you know, number one, Auckland, number two, Wellington, number three, uh, Canterbury, I suppose it was, or... Christchurch, number four, to Dunedin. Uh, but they had no aircraft and no ground staff. And, and they just had their refresher courses. And, of course, the, they had this very small fleet of aircraft at Wigram, which was what they all had to train on for a couple of weeks. Right. And that's why they only put up about five or ten hours on, a year <laughs> on, their, on their refresher course, if they were lucky. Right. <clears throat> they, d- they did some of those refreshers at uh, Hobsonville they too. Did, like, yeah, once, yeah, that's true. That Once uh, Hobsonville got up and running, they used to send up, uh, instead of bringing them all down to Wigram, they, they sent, uh, you know, I don't know, three or four aircraft up. They had to ferry them up to Hobsonville and do the, the two North Island squadrons. I, I don't know whether it was both North Island squadrons or whether it was just the Auckland ones, but they did fly them up there, Bristol right. fighters right. and tomtits and things, and um, do their... And of course, they had a few aircraft up there anyway. They had a couple of moths and two or three moths and a couple of Fairy 3Fs if they were lucky. Right. And, and, yep. a, and a Cuddy Sark flying boat, but I don't think the Territorials ever flew that. They just flew the normal service machines okay. that they were likely to use. Yeah, but it was very, very tiny. You know, people just don't believe it had the whole Air Force comprised about six, four to six regular officers and about 20 airmen. That, this is all through the 1920s. Right? I think, you know, Hobsonville opened up about 1929, I think, 1929, 1930. So, that, you know, that was it. Yeah. And, um, as I said, the territorial part of it would have been about 80, 70 to 80 officers, all pilots. And the ground staff was, you know, great. It probably stayed, you know, you can look up the figures. It was pretty tiny. <laughs> Yeah, and and the, and of course the most impressive thing was when they decided they needed to train um, new pilots. You know, they started to run out of these fellows from World War One. They, they they sort of fell by the wayside or got sick of it or gradually tailed off. They, they knew they had to train fresh ones from scratch, and they started a course in 1927 with about 12, uh, 10 pupils, I think it was. Okay, and including quite a few who became well known later. Uh, I think one fell by the wayside, but the other nine all graduated. But they they were trained the army way, 
in two respective, uh, two, might have been four weeks or six week courses at Wigram. One in the, okay. one in the uh, Christmas holidays of 27, 28. And then, then they went away and never came back until the following year at the same time, 28, 29, Christmas. <laughs> and they did the second half. Well, that's not a very satisfactory way of training pilots. They probably had to relearn to fly when they got there for the second part of their course. Yeah. And they only did, ever did the one course like that. And, um, yeah, I think Mickey Wilkes was one on that course. Oh, okay. Yep, yep. Of course, later led the Avengers squadron up in, um, in Bougainville. Yep. Quite a few, recognised quite a few of the names of the other ones. They were, there was even, yeah, they were, uh, I'm trying to think if they had anything to do with the university, but I don't think they did at that stage. Yeah, and uh, and after that they just relied on people coming in through the territorials. Yeah, all those nine pilots that did graduate became territorials. They were to reinforce the territorial Air Force, not the regulars. They didn't upset the, the hardcore of about six, <laughs> which, which ran the entire Air Force, from what, mostly from, you know, there were sort of two or three in Wellington and was, once they got Hobson and two or three at Wigram, and then they had to provide a wee staff at Hobsonville too. But yeah, that, that's how tiny the Air Force was. Of course, the thing with uh, uh, with those territorial pilots, though, I mean, that sounds pretty bad that they only met once a year for a couple of weeks, but... Um, most of those guys were involved in the aero clubs and oh, flying right. regularly in the aero clubs, weren't they? True. Yeah, most of them probably were all, all private owners. Yeah, one or two of them had, may have had private aircraft, but even right. private aircraft were pretty rare in New Zealand in the, certainly in the 20s, they were practically non-existent. And they, once the moths started, some of those were. Well, I, one, one was Sir Bruce Stewart too, that's right. And he had a puss moth. Very, okay. very nice private aircraft. Yep, he had to... Hey. He had to have it ferried out to his home airstrip on Banks Peninsula, but he didn't feel competent to do it himself. He had to get uh, Jerry Steadman or something like that to ferry it out, I think. Okay. That'll be in about the, oh, I think it was in the mid-30s, early early 30s, actually. Yeah, they took it out to his airstrip. It was a pretty rum sort of an airstrip, but he had to learn to fly in, in and out of that too. And uh, I think he was, I think Sir Bruce, I think I remember either him himself or people told me that he said it was that he he was particularly popular with the um, on his courses on his refresher courses when they were flying the Bristol fighters because he could apparently he was a good lander oh, right. <laughs> and, the, and they didn't like people that were rough landers sometimes they did you know took up the, the wireless apparatus for um, you know, army cooperation flights or something and they were rather delicate things and they were easily easily damaged by rough landings okay, so, okay. so anyway Bruce Stewart thought he was a good lander, possibly because of his practice on his pusmoth on this terrible uphill airstrip. <laughs> had, a, had a nice feel for it, apparently. Okay. Now, I know another one that was involved in the Territorials, probably later later in the Territorials, um, was Ian Horton, who, who uh, his family owned Wilson and Horton Publishing with the Herald. And um, he arranged for the Herald to donate a moth to the Auckland Era Club. Uh, which um, ah, right, of course right. the the Auckland Aero Club was all of the instructors I think were uh, territorial pilots. And they used to do a lot of uh, a, a lot of stuff, um, you know, flying with all these moths in formation and stuff, which would have been 
just what they would have been doing if they were in the Air Force anywhere, I guess, but in aerobatics, all that sort of thing. Oh, yeah, well, that was popular. Um, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of pilots had a crack. Well, some pilots, some pilots didn't be bothered with the aerobatics, of course, but others yeah. decided that they'd like to try that. Be like, you know, because all their instructors could. <laughs> well, most of them. Yeah. Yeah. One or two were quite well known for it, like Dave Allen, for instance. Yeah, he was uh, he was pretty much the Ray Hanner of his time, wasn't he? Yeah, something he was, like he that. Was, he was a household name of uh, of uh, flying displays. He didn't fly anything. Yeah. yeah, I'd love to see footage of him flying. I wonder if anyone ever took any film of him flying, because some of the descriptions you see in the newspapers of his uh, his acts at different uh, air pageants just incredible. And of course, another one well known for his aerobatics, I think, was old um, Mac McGregor. Oh yes, yep. of course he gave up flying partway through the thirties. Oh, of course he quite badly damaged himself too, didn't he? In that crash of a glider at Wigram in about nineteen twenty-four or something, he had a bad crash. Have you heard of that glider? It was, I think, I'm no. not even sure who owned it, but they had it at the, I think it was at a refresher course at Wigram in about nineteen thirty-four. It was called a Handerside. Of course, Handerside were a, a known aeroplane company in Britain. You could Google Handerside. You know, H A N D A. S Y D E, I think it was Henderside, but it was a it was a proper sailplane, um, with you know removable wings, I think. Um, but he, yep. he he was being towed off, and something went wrong with the release on it, and he nose dived it in, and was quite badly knocked about. You know, he broke his nose and covered in bumps and bruises, and probably broke other bones too. So okay. it was quite a bad knock, and, and it, that was done at Wigram. Oh, right. as, I, but as I said, I've never actually really found out who owned that aeroplane. I don't think the airports were interested in it. Might have been probably oh, no. might have been privately owned by somebody. Yeah, I'd never even heard of I was, that. It was, I think it was destroyed in the accident. I mean, you always yeah. get some keen type wreck comes along and says, "Oh, I reckon I could rebuild that," but I don't think that one ever ever <laughs> flew again. Yeah, I think they only I think they only ever built two of them. One, you know, one, the prototype, and this this one was must ordered by somebody. Okay. Well, some organisation, yeah. But you said that he'd given up flying, but he was flying airline stuff. Oh, that's right. Yeah, there was a period in the. It was even. It was well before the depression too. But he. Um, he became a drover for a while. Ah. Which meant you know he used to, he, he not a sh- yeah a drover not a shepherd a drover I'm not quite sure you know because a drover usually moves mobs of sheep from one part of the country to the other. That was yep. if, if you couldn't afford to um, rail them. And of course, truck were, tr- trucks were hardly viable in those days. You could either ship them or move them on a hoof. Right. And uh, apparently, drovers were in some demand for moving we are reasonably large flocks. You just had to pay one person, and they yep. might take a they might take a week or something, or three days or whatever. But I'm pretty sure he was doing droving. It's all about it in his book, I think. He, saw, he right, went right, right away from flying for a while, but then he went. He, I think when the airlines, I think he was coaxed back in. In the mid '30s, because Union Airways um, took him on as their operations manager or something, you know, quite a senior position. He right. even had, I think, he even had something to do with ordering their uh, aircraft, despite the fact he'd been away from aviation for years. Okay. He probably read the European and flight it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I know I had, he had a quick break though for a while. All oh, right, I never realised that because uh, he seems to pop up everywhere with all sorts of things like Hamilton Airways. And, That's right. Yeah, he may have even been. Um, he might have even got back before Union Airways. Actually, I think he did. He might have got back into it in the early third in the Depression. Yeah. Funny enough. And he he was flying a passenger flight uh, when he was killed, wasn't uh, he? Yeah, yeah, that was a charter. That was uh, charter. 
yeah. charter, yeah. But he was, that was, in fact, another pilot was, because that was CWF Hamilton, of course, that was the passenger. Yeah. Hamilton jet boat. Hamilton jet boat. Uh, but, and of course, he was survived without, with, I think he was a bit hurt, but not, I don't uh, oh, Mac just sort of caught, he must have hit his head on something. Yeah. Because it went over on its back, the aircraft. Yeah. Yes. Went out of control, yeah. went out of control and flipped over. Yeah, mm. but um, continue. Well, um, the uh, the territorial air force at that time, uh, from 1923 through to well into the 30s, was led by uh, Good Caldwell, wasn't it? Keith Caldwell. I think it was. Yeah. Oh, that might have been. Of course, they weren't even uniform. Well, there might have been somebody in charge of reserves. I think they called them. But he was certainly the. I think he was the officer commanding the territorial wing, or some name like that. It was a wing. Yeah, that's right. It was a wing. Yeah. I can't remember what the name uh, of the wing was, with, but and they were, and they had the four squad, and then they, that's when they gave them the squadron numbers. Up yes, to that time, right. they were all individuals. There was no organisation at all apart from being in this New Zealand Air Force brackets territorial. They 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 were invited to these refresher courses. Uh, they, I think they the, the the size of the courses was based on the number of aircraft they could get serviceable. Like if they could oh, only yeah. get five aircraft they might just and they and they had remember that there, there were about 70 officers you see they had to sort of break them up into manageable size groups yes. so they might they might be there for 10 days or eight days or something and they and of course they had to consider you know, accommodation at Wigram of course the accommodation at Wigram for them was um, well of course you didn't have to use the official stuff I think originally they wanted them to stay on those little huts that they they still got at Wigram you know the so-called block seven Oh yes, yep, yep. Because yep. they were built for the, you know, the New Zealand, uh, the Canterbury Aviation Company, of course, for their pupils, and they were ten. I think it was ten. Was it twelve? Twelve huts, was it? Something like that. I think, of course, they're they're, they're, they're minus one room cabin now because they went where they cut it in half and made a bit of a mess of it. So they, so the doors go, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, eight, nine. <laughs> <laughs> 10, 11, 12, something like that. You know, there's a, and you look at it, they're sort of sawn through it. They, but you obviously they made a muck up at that point. Right, right. Because the because the strong parts, of course, were cut, uh, if you cut it next to a wall, the, the, the walls that divide them into the cubicles. And were, I think yeah. they were structural walls. They'd have to be, uh, well, they were anyway. Um, you'd have all these boards sort of hanging in midair, and. Uh, and they right. probably broke off, and they said, "Oh, just cut them all off short on the other other side." No, nobody yep. will notice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they're all still there, but they but I think they were originally provided, but I don't think they were, they weren't very flash. You know, they're pretty basics of understatement. But a lot a lot of them actually uh, stayed in hotels. I think that some of them stayed at the um, Rickerton Arm. Was it the Rickerton? What do they call it? The um, oh no, the um, uh... Bush, Bush Inn. Bush Inn, yeah, that that was sort of the unofficial officers' mess, wasn't yeah, it? It was, yeah. A lot of them, uh, the, the wealthy ones, anyway, stayed there. Probably the poorest ones might have. Um, well, you could start the officers' club in town or something. Right. Because of course, in those days, you know, Wigram was way out in the bloody boondocks, really. Yeah, yeah. Although they did eventually, they eventually the tram went almost got to there, didn't it? That's that's exactly what I was just going to ask. Did the tram go that far? I think it went to Rickerton only. I think. Ah, yep, yep. But I could, I stand to be corrected. It could have, uh, whether it was extended. I don't think it ever went out to Hornby. But um, yeah, so the um, this, they used to turn up, and, and of course most of them seemed to turn up just there. Um, didn't even bother with uniforms most of the time. So, at what point did the air force suddenly start to expand into proper regular? Uh, was it the nineteen thirty six recruiting drive they had, where they got hundreds of guys suddenly come in in nineteen thirty six, or did that start earlier? 
uh, well, the first expansion would have been about 34, 35. Okay. When they ordered the Wildebeests and, and the Avro 66s, because they're basically you know, flying all World War I stuff up till then. And of course, the only, the, the, of the four territorial squadrons, they had two were nominally bomber squadrons, and the other two were nominally army cooperation. That's how they broke it up. So the sort of training they did was um, uh, cooperating with guns. And s they did, yeah, did cooperation with searchlights too. They did, they did some night flying. Although, as far as I can make it, um, I don't think I've looked. Actually, I had there's an article on the Bristol Fighters coming out soon in the Aviation Society Journal, and it's um, an article by Warren Russell. But he uh, he's doing this article on the Bristol Fighters, and uh, I was, okay. the, the question of lights on them came up. I looked all through the photographs, and I couldn't see any sign of lights attached to these aircraft. And I know they did do, they were certainly doing light, night flying well before the war. Perhaps it was after the Wildebeest, when the Wildebeest got here, because they all had lights. And, right. And so did the Avro 66s. And, okay. um, but possibly, I mean, whether they had lights that they could attach just for, if they needed them, uh, and take them off the rest of the time, I don't know. But, you know, in the old days, very early days, they used to have little lights on little sort of stalks. They used to sit them on the wingtips. They used to stick up on these little stalk things. And, the, yep. and they often had one on the rudder, too, on the trading edge of the rudder. Yep. I think that would upset the rudder balance, wouldn't you? They, yeah. they probably had to put a compensating, you know, little weight for to the centre of whatever it is. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm not actually sure when they really started. I'm, I'm, I have an idea that they did start night flying before the Wilderbeast arrived, but... Anyway, once they did all of the Wilderbeast, they thought they'd have to increase the staff quite a bit because, of course, they were going to be used to form two uh, permanent squadrons or, or right. fl and flight. In fact, they went for squadrons, they're only flights. Flights, yeah. I think they called them, yeah, the number one bomber reconnaissance flight, number two. I think number one was Auckland, number two was at Wigram. That's right, yep. Uh, and they sort of had, but the, but the actual members of that were actually also the instructors. <laughs> And they still had to do refresher courses for the territorials to try and keep them up to a minimal standard, which was pretty low, really. But they did. They did. There so, was a certain expansion. They did get quite a few extra officers in, in the mid thirties, including people like Tony Lester. A lot of them actually were XRF. Had come, you know, short New Zealanders that had, you know, there's always a small uh, yeah. trickle of New Zealanders going off to Britain to join the the real air force. Yep. And, they'd, and they'd do their four or five years or whatever it was and come and they'd offer them their services and of course uh, normally they'd only take them on if they, there was a vacancy and, and because you know the government set the, the maximum strength you know the establishment and, yep. and up till then there was only about you know six or eight officers <laughs> and they were on the regulars but they had to increase that when they got the wildebeest to maybe you know 10 or 12 or something and, and, and plus the odd stores stores officer uh, who would be yeah, an equipment officer, they call them. Yes. And the adjutants, who are often ex-GD officers anyway, or ex-GDs. So it was still pretty small, but there was a noticeable increase in the... Um, in the Because as you know, they... Well, you possibly don't, but they... When they were setting up the uh, territorials in the first place, they were going to have their own ground staff. This is, this is in the early days. Okay. Um, I'm not quite sure. Late 20s it was, that's right. I find it in the annual reports. They decided to advertise for territorial airmen for the ground staff. 
But they only just started it and their depression hit and they, uh, whoever they'd signed up, they had to tell them that they, the government had cancelled that plan. Oh, right, OK. So that's why they never had any ground stuff. And of course, without ground stuff, they couldn't operate aircraft. Yeah. So that's why they had to manage with these refresher courses, which were not that satisfactory, really. They, they were absolute bare minimum. And, and in fact, they, 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 I think they expressed them. They said, well, if you want to keep your flying practice up, you know, you join an aero club. And, uh, well, some of them had joined aero clubs anyway, I think, or bought their own planes. But, um, yep. So it was pretty skimpy Air Force when you think that, that, uh, that up, up until the mid-30s, they had no regular uh, fighting units at all. It's just, just like the army. Yeah. All, all, the it, entire it's, it's fighting amazing. part of the, uh, the defence force was territorial. Which, which entailed maybe two or three weeks a year training. And, and sometimes, we, you know, uh, they used to set up weekly parades too, um, like all around the country for the army. They had what they used to call drill halls, I think they were called, yep. or army halls. And, they used to, and the territorial units used to just go there for instruction and stuff once a week if they were keen. I don't know whether you were compulsory attendance, you know, only, only if it was within easy reach of where people lived, of course. Yep. And the same yep. with the territorial, I think they... Well, certainly once they got going properly, as you, as you know, at the end of the 30s, they decided to get real aircraft for them and ground starts, and that's when they could really set up. And, yeah, so uh, the, anyway, that, yeah, the arrival of the Wildebeest, of course, coincided with the building of the big hangars at Wigram too, and, oh, and yes, extra ones at Hobsonville, I think, you know, the big concrete hangars. Yep. Yep. In fact, you know, Wigram went from, because up, up till 35, they just had all those old Canterbury Aviation Company ones. They didn't build any, oh, they, the only ones they built weren't hangars at all. They were those two... Um, storage that were, was it two? Oh, t- tell a lie, they did build two hangars at Woodrum in 1920, and that was to store the gift aircraft. The, um, oh, yeah. Uh, Empire, what they call it? Empire gift aircraft? Was it um, Imperial gift, wasn't it? That's the one, yeah, Imperial gift aircraft. And that was the, you know, the two Bristol fighters and the two DH4s, and about I think they had about four or six Avros too, 504s. Okay. And all the other ones are loaned out to civil companies to start airlines with. Um, right. But those two right. companies, I'm trying to think what they called those hangars. But they were proper uh, old aircraft hangars with the lattice work trusses. Oh, yes. Yeah. often yep. see in very early hangars, you know, World War One and thereabouts. These were like that. And they had malfoid root covering on the roofs, you know, curved roofs and everything. And there were two of them. I'm not sure what they call them, but they were there. Uh, and, and so those, plus all the old Canterbury Aviation Company ones, were kept right up till they started building these this big building program. They started in the mid about 35, yep. when they with the Wildebeest's Dewey Day and um, the Arrows. That was that alone was 16 aircraft. Yeah. Wildebeest were quite large, and, um, and of course they were based at both Hobsonville and Wigram, so they had to, they built the numbers one and. What do you call them? Uh, well, uh, two, two, uh, two and three hangar and four and five hangar at that time. The other concrete, yep. you know, the big concrete hangars with the one had the sliding doors. The original one had the electric operated um, tilting, tilted doors. And that was what all the wildebeest and things would do. But they, even then they weren't uh, ready when the wildebeest actually arrived. And they actually, those photographs of them being assembled in the old... Um, I think they, one, some of them were partially put on their wheels and things. They took them out of their crates and put them out on their wheels. 
they might have even put their tails on, I'm not sure, in, in the centre sections, and they then they wheeled them in. They, they, they did that at, yeah, they came over from Littleton, the ones for Wigan anyway, they were taken from Littleton through the tunnel, I think. It was, okay. was on trucks, I'm not sure now. I think they came on rail, actually. Well, they seem to be corrected, and they brought them through and to... Yeah, some were taken direct to Wigan, I think, but others were trucked, I think, and they assembled at least one batch in uh, King Edward Barracks. Right oh, town. okay. And they put their right. wheels, and they wheeled them into Wigan, but I think later ones were the, the crates. They were in all big crates, you know, one fuselages and one, and they probably took the engine and propeller off and the tail off and the wings off. Yep. Intersections. And, but, but there's definitely pictures of them, actually, in some of the old, I think it might have even been those... Um, 1920s hangers, I think there were those pictures of them actually being assembled in those. Okay. Any, yep. Anyway, they, um, of course, there was a building these, I think they built extra hangers at one or two at Hobsonville at the time, too, to fit all these new aircraft. And they were much lighter, I think. And, and uh, as they built them, I think they also had a program for further buildings at Wigan. And I think they built the MT workshops behind the hangars. And, when the, and the, to do that, they had to demolish all the remaining Canterbury Aviation Company ones. They all got bowled over. They're all wooden structures. So that yep. was in the late 30s. They lasted two. But one, there was one hangar, they, one building they kept. I think it was, a, I have no idea it was the, uh, actually, cause as you know, the, cause the Aero Club was operating at Wigan too from the late, late 20s. Yes, yep. And so they had their little area uh, by themselves. And they had quite a large hangar, which was their main hangar. I have no idea that was the one that became the famous green shed. Oh, I yep. think that's, the, I'm pretty sure that's where it came from. And of course it was plonked right where the museum is, where they built the museum headquarters. It had to, right. it had to be demolished for them to build the museum headquarters in the late okay. 80s. And people said, oh, that's the green shed, that's famous. You know, that's where the radar was born in New Zealand. Yeah. Well, it wasn't actually born there, but it was a, it was a centre of... of Knowledge on, and of course they started. They fitted the teams that did the experiments with the um, New Zealand-made radar operated from there, and they right. also used to send Hudsons and things down to have their. If they were having trouble with the radar, they had seen them, and, and, and they had a lot of trouble with the radar. They had seen them down to Wigram, and they'd get them sort them out. Actually, fitted to the aircraft. You know, it was usually the aerials and wiring and stuff that made made trouble. Right. Right. And they seemed to have plenty of problems in the early days. And, uh, and of course, and it was also because of its status, it was sort of the most secret part of the Air Force almost. You had to have special reason to be in that hangar or that building. Okay. Green, right. green hut. I think it was called the hut. It was quite a large shed. Yeah. So also, um, Wigram through the 1930s uh, was also the airport, wasn't it? Yeah. The, yeah, the, yeah. Uh, Union, Union Airways and that. That's right. Because the Aero Club was the agent, were the agents for Union Airways. The, the uh, Union had no staff there at all. Oh right. Because it was only a, a stop on the on the route. Um, no engineer, nothing. They, you know, they had engineers at, in the middle. At Palmerston North was their main engineering headquarters, and the, yep. I think they had an engineer at each end of the route too. Like the neat, because they did, only went down as far as Tyree. Yep. I think it was yeah Tyree, and up to Mangaree. I think that was the, the other end. So they were the terminals and they often used to, they had hangers to overnight planes there yep. and they yep. also had an, I think had an engineer at each end, just one, you know, a resident engineer but at the, at just the waypoints, you know, Blenheim and stuff, they didn't have anybody, just a pilot 
uh, although there was often there was a local area club who might have an engineer that might consent to look at, you know, if you had a spark plug problem. <laughs> There's a beautiful bit of film that uh, Sir Bruce Stewart took, a beautiful full colour of a quite good film of a DH-86 landing. Thanks oh, wow. up, and then the Aero Club people come out with the. Um, they had a they had a little picket fence, little wee low picket fence to. You know, it was quite a joke, really. You could just step over it. Yep. <laughs> just to mark the point where your passengers shouldn't go beyond without you know being asked to board the aircraft. And they had this little set of steps, which you know just high enough to reach the passenger door. And here they were all getting on this aircraft, and then it's they eventually start up and taxi out and roll off and climb away, all in colour. Wow. I, wonder, I always wonder where that film got to. You know, I think yeah. we saw it in the, uh, I was shown at the uh, Aviation Disciples Society in the uh, Elmo Court well, many, okay. many years ago. Somebody heard about it. Might have been, I don't know if dad had anything to do with it. He used to, dad used to know him. He used to work for him at one stage. Right. Um, it's probably somewhere, but what, he also had an earlier film done, on a, done by a completely different process which was not very satisfactory, but it was of um, flying, it was taken flying, and I, I think in films too, from taken from his, when he was flying his Postmoth, he used to put the old control stick between his knees and get his camera and sort of take pictures of passing scenery. <laughs> Brilliant. He some, actually, I think he had some quite nice stuff of Auckland Aero Club too, and might have been in Cal. He, had, okay. he also had a um, Centaurus, you know, the Empire Airways boat, sitting in Littleton yep. in full colour. Of course, the unfortunate thing is, of course, that they were not colourful aircraft. They were just yeah. silver with black lettering. Yep. <laughs> but, the, but the water was nice and blue, so that gave, and, the, and the hills were a bit green, so that, that meant it was definitely colour film. But if they, these films must be floating around somewhere. Yeah, I hope so. I hope yeah, they, they were in quite good condition when we saw them too. I was, I was just amazed. I thought, oh, I thought, God, it looks like it was taken yesterday. Yeah. Mind you, a lot of films in those days went very sharp. They certainly went HD quality. Yeah, so, yeah. They'd be good ones to find. Definitely. Put the word out. Has anybody seen these? Does anybody know where these? I mean, because he died oh many years ago. Yeah, he might have died in the 1980s or something. Yeah, so that's uh, yes, it's been interesting to find if those films still exist because I've never heard of them since. A couple of questions that uh, occur to me just listening to all this history. Um, the first one is. When the Wildebeest arrived in 1936, 35. 30, 35, and they were still running the refresher courses for the territorial guys, did they start getting them converted onto the Wildebeest, or were they kept separate away from the territories? They, I think a few of them had a few flights on them, but I, they seemed to concentrate mostly on the, because um, um, that was only for a brief period, of course, before they got their own baffins. Yeah. Uh, of course, the arrival yeah. of Baffins meant they didn't. Well, even then, they still only had. Let me think. Even with the, uh, when they got their own aircraft, they still only flew at weekends. Yes. And yes. And, and 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 they had. They did have their own ground staff, but I don't think it was normally. They had to have a lot of help from the regulars anyway. Not not for well, huge the, numbers of them either. Well, at, at that stage, they had about six or seven regulars on the on the squadrons from this is from 1938 onwards uh, on the territorial squadrons but they had about 150 uh, territorial ground staff so, so. Um, they, they really built them up into proper squadrons which was pretty good yeah and particularly and, but of course they had the disadvantage of fairly elderly aircraft and in fact yeah. quite primitive too because they didn't have brakes or tail wheels so they had they're quite difficult to handle on the ground it was like a giant tiger moth you had to the only way to actually turn them was to increase revs and 
get moving and then you could slew the tail around, but it was pretty hard on the aerodromes too, you used to rip them up. Yeah. Because yep. of course yep. the tail skid was also the brake. <laughs> yeah. And they were not, they were cl very clumsy on the ground, those aircraft. I think, what was the yep. other one? The, uh, the Gordon, yeah, the Gordon was like oh, that too. Yep. And, and all light aircraft had skids until, well, of course, the Postmoth, uh, most Postmoths had tail wheels. But all the moths generally had um, the more primitive ones anyway, just had a skid. But you know, it didn't matter so much on light aircraft. It's when you get heavier and heavier, they get quite destructive. Yes. Yeah. And I think the Gordons were accused of causing a lot of damage at the uh, the satellite aerodromes too, you know, at um, Burling's Flat and what was the other one? At the WiMAC field too. They oh, said yeah. they ripped yeah. them up quite badly. And Ann Norwood used to land there. But, but of course, the Vildes had tail wheels and brakes, so they were much, much more eco-friendly. Right. Um, the other question that occurs to me is, right back at the beginning, when the government took over uh, Sockburn and uh, and they took over the Canterbury Aviation Company. Yes, it's some dates um, of the Canterbury Aviation Company, yeah. Yeah. Did Sir Henry Wigram still have any input into uh, the Air Force from then on? Because he had really, he'd set all that up himself. As a private business. So, yeah, well, he did, because he was, because um, his main income was from his newspapers, was he? Did he own the press? Was it the press? He, no, 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 Littles and Times, I think it was. Ah, yeah. It was Littles and Times, but he was, that was his main means. Of course, he did donate money to them for the extra land, and he remember he paid for one of the, the first green. Right. That must have cost him a pretty penny. Yeah. But it wasn't, it wasn't just, it was a second-hand one, but it had been extensively uh, overhauled by Gloucesters, I suppose it was. Yeah, and that was New Zealand's first fighter, wasn't it? Uh, oh no, the one of the Brist Bristol fighters before well, fighters. Bristols were, of course, by the time of the end of the war, they weren't they weren't really a fighter, despite the name. They were more of a useful two seater that could fight to defend itself, but they were probably uh, at a disadvantage against proper single seaters. Yeah. Um, if it came down to it, in fact, they were much. Yeah, it'd be interesting to know. Because they were operated as, even when they went to service, they weren't seen as fighters. Right. They were just seen as another two-seater, you know, operational aircraft. I think there was hardly any differentiation in the early days. There was trainers and there was operational aircraft with guns and, and you could hang bombs on them. And um, uh, the, yeah, the Bristol fight was an interesting one, really. It was, you know, quite as I said, quite sprightly for a, a two-seater. And a yes. relatively large aircraft too, but then again, so is those F, F, you know, those fee planes, FEs, FE8s, they're great big lumbering monsters. Yep. But they, uh, yeah, I'm not even sure what the name of the, uh, I don't even know how they use them actually, you have to read about their, I think they were used as fighters uh, for a while, but they, yeah, certainly after the war they weren't, they were, used, they were just seen as an army cooperation type, like right. any other. But they were, apparently they were quite a pleasant aircraft to fly for those days and um, had a reasonable performance and um, quite popular. And, and so Henry Wigram himself, he, he wasn't given any sort of honorary rank within the Territorial Air Force when they set it up or anything like that? Uh, I don't know. Of course he was always known as the father of the Air Force. So. Yeah. yeah. Because he did do a lot, you know, in, in, when he was in the... Uh, mem uh, what do they call them? The... Uh, the upper house cook. Um, oh yeah, um, Parliament anyway. Yeah, he, it was back when we had that upper house, wasn't it? It was like the Lord's House of Lords. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can't think of, think of what it was. No. 
So the uh, yeah the as I said the early days are much misunderstood uh, and very very small uh, scale operations. Yeah. But they did as but as we said the the permanents were basically either here headquarters or commanding the, the one or two stations they had. Although of course even I don't know when they another interesting point is when they set up Hobsonville or at some point it was named. Wasn't named RNZF station, or it was named a base, and that's interesting. That's right. That's interesting that's because right. in the RAF, a base, the RAF used that term sparingly, and it seems to be it used it where there was airfield and seaplane facilities. Or, you know, ah. And you'll find uh, the most of their seaplane ones that had, of course, sometimes there was no space for a. Uh, a uh, was in a harbour or something, there's no space for an airfield, but if they had both facilities for both, they seem to call them a base for some reason. Oh, right. I've often wondered about that, because you're often, in the in the early days, they called it Hobsonville Air Base, you know, in the press and stuff. That's right, yeah, it was it was quite distinct from Wigram, which is often called an aerodrome. But, but mm. the most interesting thing I've seen, I forget who it was now, it might have been Graham McConnell or one of those people, have you heard of him? He, he, yep, yep. He, Nelson, is that the one? Yes. Yep. He found a letter, uh, a letterhead that they had at Wigram. It was from the mid thirties, or well, it must be early thirties, and it was called the New Zealand Air Forces, in plural, Aerodrome Wigram. Okay. That was obviously it's probably who it was at Wigram charge, probably uh, Findlay or somebody must have ordered these. I thought that's the first time I've ever seen the Air Forces referred to as the Air Force referred to as Air Forces, because that was to allow for both the regulars and the. And I thought that's really interesting. Oh but yeah, I've never, but yeah, I've never yeah. seen anything official about that because, of course, when you actually look at, it, they'll say, well, that's the New Zealand Air Force has got these two parts. It's got the regulars, and that's the um, New Zealand Permanent Air Force, which is what yep. the Army they they always had permanent staff, and then they had the. New Zealand Air Force brackets territorial, and that was the two halves of it. But there right. was no actual combined name. Uh, it's a bit like the well, a lot of military services like that. But you even look at the the RAF; they had the Royal Air Force, then they had the Royal yep. Air Force, uh, the Auxiliary Air Force, and they had the yep, and the Royal Air Force Reserves, and they were the, they were made up of all sorts of different uh, sections of the reserves. And of course, after the war, when they had ATC, they used to put them under the reserves too. But and they, they, had, they had titles like the Winds of Auxiliary Air Force that was formed. That was that was what they used to call it an auxiliary service, not part of the wartime air force as such. Right. Later, um, and that's why they. I think even they they didn't wear. I'm trying to think of their badges and things. They didn't wear. Like if you're if you're an auxiliary, you cannot have a a crown on your buttons. You know they used to put crowns on, um, like an arrow. Oh, yep. And yep. they and the ATC too. If you at Wigan, they've got some examples of the wartime ATC buttons, and they were black plastic. And they just had oh, yep, they yep. just had an eagle, no crown. Ah, oh, okay. Just an eagle, and that, Well, that's really interesting. And that was because they weren't part of the Air Force. And they weren't paid. They were not regulars. They were not even part of a military force as such. And they—that's why they were only allowed to wear the eagle. But post-war, they've—they've they've just given them air force buttons, of course. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Streamlined and <laughs> quite nicely made black, that sort of black Bakelite sort of stuff it was. Right, I right. Were, I think they did something similar in Britain too. They didn't put the crown on them. If you're a full-time service, full, um, like the fire brigade, for instance, they have you know, the crown and things, I think. And the police yep. and... Um, I don't know about ambulances, they're often a bit, a bit different, aren't they, ambulance services? Yeah. But yeah. Um, yeah. That, just, a, just a little distinction. Like, um, for instance, the Air Force Museum has a badge, but it hasn't, they can't put the crown on it. They have to put on a... Um, well, they can put a crown, but it's not the monarch's crown. It's, the, it's called the, the aerial, is it aerial? Yeah. Have you sure. seen? There's a, there's a naval crown too, which you often see. But the naval, the, um, I don't know whether the Royal Navy uses it, but it's got uh, ships. You know, this heraldry stuff is quite interesting. Right. It can it can be quite important if you know what it means. See, so, you know, okay. most people would think of the Air Force Museum, well, they'd have the Air Force badge. No, it's not. It's not part of the Air Force. It's it's the um, it's run by a you know a trust board. Yeah, the, right. uh, you know, the defence helps it, but it's it's not under their jurisdiction at all. They can use this. You can use this crown, which is made for aerial things that are not part of the government. Oh, okay. And you, if you if you can lay your hands on the Eagles Museum badge, you'll see what I mean. It's got, okay. it's got sort of aeroplane wings and colours um, or something, you know, something like that. Yep. And it's not the crown as uh, as as used in uh, the military, or full-time government uh, bodies. So, so the airmen who were in the permanent air force um, up b- before 1934, when it was renamed the Royal New Zealand Air Force, did, were, was there crowns on their uniform then? Or? Well, of course, the funny thing is, in the early days, the um, servicemen didn't even have a uniform. They, the the uh, you know, non-commissioned ones, yep. they just wore overalls. All oh, right, yeah. That's what they were. They were workmen and um, tradesmen. And you just won't, unless they had anything left over from the First World War, and I don't, I think the vast majority of their staff probably hadn't served overseas anyway, or they might have in the army. You yep. just, you never see them in anything but overalls. Right. And according to Bill Dinney, and it's since been proven true, is the first time that airmen actually got a, a proper uniform was in, um, when Kingsford Smith turned up in a, at Wigram and his trimotor. Okay, and whether it was whether it was because of his arrival or or was purely coincidental was uh, probably coincidental was that they happened, they happened to mention in the coverage of Kingsford Smith's arrival that they said oh this is one of the few occasions that we've seen the um, members airmen of the uh, New Zealand Permanent Air Force in their uniforms now they were apparently of a strange shade of blue and they're all tailor made because there were so few of them you couldn't sort of put out a but it was far quick and easier just to get them measured up than yep. to sort of try to set up a system of sizes when you find that, you know, there were only about five in standard sizes and three that were too tall and one was too fat and, you know, they're all different shapes and sizes. And um, But I've, ne- I've we've never even seen photographs of the original uniform, believe it or not. Okay. And whether they oh, wore wow. a badge, we have no idea. They don't mention it. Okay. And that's the only description we've ever found of the early uniform for airmen. But they certainly, and they only ever wore them on very special occasions. Normally, they just would not wear them. But yeah. On duty, we just would not wear a uniform. And of course, the the, the officers would have worn the army uniform, wouldn't they? Uh, well, they got onto the. Well, they would have to start with because, um, as 
they often, I'm sure, wore their um, wartime uniforms or even got replicas made of them if they got too tatty, but they probably looked after yep. them. And, uh, and they, But the first, they did start wearing blue uniforms quite early, and earlier than you'd think. Um, okay. Because, of course, Isaac was sent to London, you know, for the uh, attachment to the... Uh, he was on attachment to? He was in Britain anyway, uh, doing some courses. I think he did his course on seaplanes, uh, you know, to learn to fly the cutting sark. When he arrived back, he had his blue uh, uniform based on the RAF pattern, one of the first, I think. But he had it. It was interesting too, I think. I'm sure he's got his um, the cuffs on his trousers turned up. Okay. Which is one of the very few I've ever seen. Because you, you were allowed to any day. You were allowed to turn up the cuffs. You see, a lot of World War One people had the cuffs turned up on their slacks. Yep. In yep. fact, the formal uniform, of course, was the breeches and field boots. Right. Which is straight right. from the army, of course. Yep. But, but casual dress, you wore slacks. Uh, and that did gradually come in. I think you'd probably find by year 32, 33, they were starting to all get it in blue. Okay. And that would have to include the new territorials. Of course, there was a trickle of people coming into the territorials, too. They tried to encourage them to train with the era clubs. Because after that first double uh, split course that they did, they didn't train anymore for the Air Force. It was all from the era clubs, or more commonly, uh, XRF types. And of course, they yeah. always, always had their uniform with them. RAF, and they, I'd say by, by, by 1934, all the Air Force officers would be in the blue. Oh, blue. Yeah. So, so uh, at that point, uh, when they're starting to get into the blue, but but they're not yet a separate service, which didn't happen until uh, April 1937, were they wearing blue Air Force uniforms with Army ranks? Uh, they Only for a short time. They did change officially in about 1930. 29 or 30 to Air Force ranks. It's all, it was all gazetted, you know, they, they, from this date they all use Air Force, RAF ranks. Oh, okay. So quite they, early. They were basically Air Force officers within the Army. They looked just like the RAF. Okay. In fact, I okay. don't think there was any difference, um, except that um, there must have been, uh, there was a point where they decided that they had to introduce a New Zealand flying badge. Of course, that was all officers then. Yep. And uh, all the ones at Wigham, that uh, they they had um, several of the old pre-war TAF people who donated their all their stuff to Wigham, and there's four caps amongst that all had because um, they wore the cap badges. Oh, and, and often the uniform, and they all had NZ badges on there. And if you look at photographs too, even quite early on, they've got NZ flying badges. Oh yeah, yeah. I guess they. They thought about this. They thought, well, these are new people. I don't know whether people with RAF badges were allowed to wear them after this, but um, they thought, well, we can't really put RAF badges, even though we use the RAF methods and syllabus and everything. They're not, they're not members of the RAF, you know. Right, right, right. So they came up with the NZ badge, and we've never, and it seems to be no definitely strong in the territorials. And I guess, okay. and I guess, you know, if you're an RAF on attachment, of which there were always a few in New Zealand, uh, they were allowed to wear, the, continue to wear the RAF badges, but um, yep, and buttons and everything. But the others, I think, were persuaded at some point to change over to get proper NZ badges, even if they had earned a, a badge in the World Flying Corps. <laughs> in fact, I don't even oh, know right. if you're allowed to wear an RAFC badge on the. Um, yeah, that's an interesting one. You know, it's just like the old observer badge. You know, they, they ordered people to change them, although that was there was a lot of reluctance to do that. 
Yes. They, they, yes. Some of them point blank refused, even though they, you know, that's what it said in the regulations. They were supposed to have had this badge, but they said some of them just <laughs> kept them. <laughs> yeah. Just, uh, just as, uh, you know, you've probably met the old crusty old NCOs who like the brass badges and refuse those horrible plastic things they got later. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was in the ATC and we had brass badges. In fact, they wore Air Force badges, believe it or not. We actually, we actually wore the underneath badge, despite that not being in the regulations at all, but I think just for convenience. And yeah, all, all, okay. all the buttons, we, we never had, you know, we wore underneath buttons and underneath badges. Yep. And we'd polish them up, and often they were nice, you know, worn smooth. They were, the, yep. they were always the favourite ones. Everybody wanted a nice, smooth, shiny badge. And of course, all the NCOs used to get um, anodised badges. And everybody craved them because you didn't have to polish them. Okay. Yep. We've still like polishing your badges and buckles and things. Yep. Yeah. Mm. And there's always, a, there's always a lot, some people don't like change. <laughs> yeah. And when, I must admit, when I had looked at some of the anodised badges too, they were pretty crappy quality, some of them. Well, it's, um, it's been really fascinating talking about those early days of the Air Force, uh, David. Well, and I wasn't um, even there. Yeah. <laughs> Just stuff I pick up, but yeah, I was always, but I was always pleased because I remember Bill Denny what used to go on about this, this that, that early airman's uniform, and, and people said, well, I thought, oh, I suppose it's true, and uh, finally one day I thought, oh, I'll check up on that and just read through the newspapers after we were over the Kings and Smith, and sure enough, there it was. Right, right. So they said one of the first, or one of the few occasions that we've seen, so it may have even been around for a, a month or even a year before but they did actually have, but only for very formal occasions, they actually had a uniform for airmen, okay. all, all tailor-made. That was from Bill Dini, which I suppose he's right. Yeah. He's usually right. He's long since gone, of course. Yeah. But, um, yeah, and, uh, but, but it was, he, he was quite adamant it was a different blue to the later blue that was adopted for the, you know, went, and another point I didn't mention either was that often you'll see Airmen in uh, overalls, but they're still wearing a, an SD cap. Yes. And they are the, um, probably an equals RAF blue. Right, and, yeah, I've seen that. And they've, and, and they've got RAF badges on them. Oh. If you get close enough, you'll see they have not got RAF badges. This is in the mid-30s. They later designed an RAF badge, but that came in about 36, 37. Okay. You, you know, years after they actually changed the name, I'd say. But, but yeah. Yeah, look, even people who are working on Gloucester Greaves and things, if you look, because often they haven't got any hats on at all, but if they've got hats on, often the NCOs keep these on just to, so you can tell them from a distance. And that, it's definitely an RAF badge. You know, you can see it, you know, it's a big A in the middle, it goes up the top, and then the R on one side and the F on the other. And yep. no NZ intertwined into it. You can, even if it's not very sharp, it stands out very clearly. And they wore RAF badges. Even okay. though they were not, the RAF had never heard of them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, which is why they eventually they decided they should get a proper. So that was the, the, the what, what I call the heraldry and the finer details of the uniform and stuff are very, very mixed, mixed bunch. Yeah. yeah. And you'd wonder which bloody Air Force you were in. <laughs> but they, they did all get it straightened out, certainly by World War Two. In fact, they've, we've got a list of the complete, uh, what do they call it, the scale of issue for uh, airmen. Right. And, you know, they've got all the, everything right down to buttons and 
and it lists there, uh, it lists all these things, and somebody must, from stores must have had access to this list, you know, this is from a, something at the museum, and they've actually put the contractor who's making them to order the okay. replacements from, okay. and they had this for the badges, because the badges were New Zealand made as far as I know, the, the, the cat badges, they weren't made, in, weren't required anywhere else. And yeah, but you, you just look out for those and those early ones of where they've actually got SD caps. And of course, they were the early ones, they called them cheese cutters, but they had a very sharp, uh, they didn't have a soft top, they had a hard, they had a piece of wire around the, the top was absolutely flat. Oh, yep, yep. And they always called them cheese cutters for some reason. Okay. And of course, uh, NCOs had to wear, um, I think they had to wear a collar and tie once you got to sergeant rank anyway. Whereas Eamon right. didn't, they, in fact, most of the time, as I said, Eamon didn't have any uniform for quite, quite a few years. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why they're quite a rare item. In fact, I don't think any, I don't, I've n never seen a, a, uh, an example of a, the, those early uniforms. The, and I'm, I'm not talking about the really early ones, 1928. I'm talking about the later ones when they got more to the RF cut and colour. They were yep. made locally from, you know, New Zealand made uh, woolen material. Yep. And they had yep. the high collars, what they call choker collars. You know, they, oh, yeah. They'd yep. have, probably have a little liner that you could take off, you know, to wash once a day or something. Or they used to get a whole lot of those collar liners, I forget what they're called. But they sort of buttoned on or had little hooks or something. Yeah. And uh, they were highly unpopular, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in fact, I, uh, only the, uh, I think the dispensation to the CEOs, they're allowed to wear them worn open, I think. Well, they might have not even got a different pattern. No, they, I think they got the first ones to get the later pattern with the, um, you, know, you wore them open, you know, proper lapels and things. Right. And, and, you, and, they, and they to only, could only be worn with a tie, shirt and tie. Okay. Yeah, but that, but that RF badge thing, I think, is quite interesting. And of course, it is. And of course the first, even the uh, introduction of the RZF instrument, we don't know the date of that. I don't even think it got in the Gazette. It should have, but it. Okay, well, that's enough for today. Yeah, well, thank you very much for that, David. Yep, well, it wasn't much, but it was just a few pointers. Great. Well, thank you very much. Okay. Cheers. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.